Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. We're continuing in the series, Diversity in Early Christianity. Today we turn to another one of the documents that are traditionally labeled Gnostic. The Gospel of Mary, or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, was not discovered, however, among the writings at Nag Hammadi in that village in Egypt. However, many of the common assumptions that we find within the Nag Hammadi writings are likewise reflected in the Gospel of Mary, and quite often scholars have grouped it together with the Nag Hammadi writings in the way we discuss it, and it's included in many translations of the Nag Hammadi documents. Today we want to explore several issues in the Gospel of Mary. First of all, we want to explore the worldview that is reflected there. In particular, this author explains more fully some notions of how to explain the return of the soul, or rather the return of the element in the soul, to its origins, to its root in the good, to return to the perfect spiritual realm. And this is explained in this document in terms of the ascent of the soul through the heavens of the material realm, ultimately to rejoin the spiritual realm. So this document is important because it explains that more fully than some of the other writings we've looked at. We also want to explore the struggles that are represented within the Gospel of Mary in this discussion today. There are struggles evident here over the issue of the role of women within the Christian groups in the second century. And the Gospel of Mary has a very particular perspective on this. And it may be given away by the title of the work itself, namely that Mary Magdalene is represented in this document as the favorite disciple of Jesus who received the ultimate secret teaching. She is the bearer of the truth that needs to be gained, of the knowledge that needs to be gained in order to gain salvation. And so here we have a woman in a teaching role, clearly. The other main issue we'll see is that the disciples, as they're presented in the Gospel of Mary, represent different types of Christianity and therefore represent the struggles for claims of truth, for claiming to have the true knowledge that are going on among different groups of Jesus followers in the second and subsequent centuries. Once again, I would suggest you need to take a look at the Gospel of Mary, preferably reading it right through before you have a listen to this podcast, so that you'll be able to follow what we're dealing with here. If you'd like to do further reading on the Gospel of Mary, I'd highly recommend Karen King's The Gospel of Mary of Magdala, which is an excellent introductory discussion of this Gospel. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Let me just introduce to you the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And we've already come across among the Nag Hammadi writings an importance attached to Mary Magdalene. The Gospel of Philip was another example where there was quite a prominent place for Mary Magdalene. In fact, we had that actual quotation about the other disciples being jealous of her being the favorite of Jesus. Let me introduce, first of all, a little bit about the manuscript and how we came to have this writing. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene is not in the Nag Hammadi collection. They've included it so that you have it in the Nag Hammadi in English, your textbook. But it wasn't discovered in 1945 among those other writings. It was actually discovered before that, earlier, but never fully investigated, never uh, gone through properly by an expert in Coptic. So the Gospel of Mary Magdalene first became accessible to scholars once it was published in 1955. 
It was discovered in a manuscript that included two other writings. It included the Sophia of Jesus Christ that you read, and it included the Apocryphon of John. That main manuscript that is used for the translation you've read is in Coptic, just like the writings that were discovered at Nag Hammadi, so in that late Egyptian language that borrows heavily from Greek. Since that was published, there has been discovery of two other fragments that also come from the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Both of these are in Greek, and unfortunately, both of them come from the same part of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene that we already have. The reason why it's a bit disappointing that these Greek fragments don't give us anything is there's so much of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene missing. In the case of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, we're missing pages 1 to 6, then we've got pages 7 to 10, then we're missing pages 11 to 14 of the manuscript, and then we've got the remaining few pages from 15 on, 15 to 17. So there's missing materials here that make it difficult then to interpret what's going on in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Most scholars date this to the second century, as most Nakamadi documents are. The fragments in Greek are dated to that period. You read that chapter in Hans-Joseph Klauck about dialogue gospels to at least be reminded that scholars have constructed this genre. And there's quite a few examples of writings from the Nag Hammadi collection and elsewhere of dialogues where it's Christ discussing with his disciples. And the dialogue gospel is presented in a way that it's the interaction between the disciples and Jesus, with the disciples asking questions and Jesus answering them. Let's work our way through it and see what sort of glimpse it gives us into a type of Christianity here. As with each of the writings we're looking at, we're trying to ask what type of Christianity are we seeing? What is the worldview of the author? What beliefs does the author have? How does it compare to some of the other groups we've looked at? How might it be different? These sorts of questions that are important to ask in plotting out the diversity of early Christianity. The first point I want to discuss with you is how the dialogue begins at the point at which we have it. Remember that pages 1 to 6 are missing. Suddenly we're hearing the conversation between Jesus and the disciples partway through a comment. But it becomes clear what they're talking about. There's two main things that are talked about as we join the dialogue here at page 6 of the manuscript. Matter and sin. I want to talk a little bit about these ideas of matter and sin. A platonic background is very clearly the basis of the discussion between Jesus and the disciples. In other words, we have again this idea of the senses and our sensory perceptions of the world around us being false perceptions. And we have the notion that Plato had of the way to achieve truth and to gain a better understanding of truth is to overcome the false impressions we have from the material world around us, to overcome the false impressions our senses give us, our touch, our smell, our sight give us. And there's this idea of overcoming the material impressions you have, overcoming your senses, overcoming your passions as the means to achieving knowledge and gaining salvation. Sin, in a way, is being tricked into believing that your senses are giving you a proper perception of things. That sin is being used in a loose way here to refer to something other than most other Christians would use it to refer to. Let's look at the phrasing that is used for this here. So Peter is talking to the Savior. Since you have explained everything to us, tell us this also. What is the sin of the world? The Savior said, there is no sin. So there's a statement on traditional sin. In other words, on sin as it's 
commonly understood among other followers of Jesus. The Savior says there is no sin. It's then going to use the analogy of sin, use the metaphor of sin, to express the thing you need to overcome. So let's see what the Savior says here, though. The Savior said there is no sin, but it is you who make sin when you do the things that are like the nature of adultery, which is called sin. That is why the good came into your midst, to the essence of every nature, in order to restore it to its root. Then he continued and said, that is why you become sick and die for blank space and of the one who blank space understands, let him understand. Matter gave birth to a passion that has no equal, which proceeded from something contrary to nature. So matter contrasted to the good is the central juxtaposition in this discussion here. And there's the idea of matter giving birth to passions and material realm being the realm of the passions. And the analogy of sin and the analogy of adultery used to describe the human condition in the material realm. Now take a look at this issue that comes up here and it comes up elsewhere. Restoring things to their roots is a very important concept in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. So material things, their root is something that will be destroyed. Passions, their root is material. And on the other hand, there are things that have as their root the good. There are commonalities between what we've seen in this worldview so far and what we learned from things like the Apocryphon of John and Gospel of Philip and elsewhere in the Nag Hammadi writings. But this is a specific way of expressing it. We haven't quite come across this idea of roots in quite this way before. Let's move back to the earlier part of the, for the discussion of sin now, where the idea of root comes up. Someone, one of the disciples most likely, has asked a question, and we only get the latter half of the sentence, but at least we know what they're talking about. Will matter then be destroyed or not? The Savior said, all natures, all formations, all creatures exist in and with one another, and they will be resolved again into their own roots. For the nature of matter is resolved into the roots of its nature alone. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this idea of things returning to the root from which they've come. And it links up with the whole idea of the ascent of the soul and the descent of the soul as well. Because there's an element in human beings that we've become familiar with in other writings that is from the spiritual realm, in this case the soul is the way it's expressed in the Gospel of Mary, the root of that soul is the spiritual realm. And the soul will be resolved again into its nature into the good, as we've just read in that second paragraph of the Gospel of Mary. That is why the good came into your midst, to the essence of every nature, in order to restore it to its roots. Restoring things to their spiritual roots, or restoring things to their material and therefore perishable roots. Remember the contrast between the eternal and the perishable that was important for Plato and Middle Platonism that we learned about, and that is common to the worldview of this author and other Nag Hammadi authors. Look at the next paragraph, and the thing that returns to its root in the terms of the spiritual root is phrased in a particular way here in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. We've come across Nagamati authors who talk about the spiritual element in humanity as the soul. We've come across Nagamati authors that speak about the spiritual element in humanity as the perfect man. 
and that those were those different authors they would talk about that being the element that ultimately will ascend and return from where it descended here in the gospel of mary magdalene it's the son of man take a look at the paragraph right after the discussion of sin so we're on page eight of the manuscript they've just talked about sin and then sin being connected with the passions and with material realm and being fooled by the material realm and then it says this when the blessed one had said this he greeted them all saying peace be with you receive my peace to yourselves beware that no one lead you astray saying lo here look take a look there for the son of man is within you follow after him those who seek him will find him Go then and preach the gospel of the kingdom. Do not lay down any rules beyond what I have appointed for you, and do not give a law like the lawgiver, lest you be constrained by it. And when he had said this, he departed. The last thing he says is, the Son of Man is within you. It seems that this author uses that term as the term for the spiritual element. And how do you achieve returning to your root? Or rather, how does the Son of Man achieve returning to its root, to the good? by realizing the Son of Man is within you, right? Gaining the knowledge that the Son of Man is within you. The Son of Man analogy parallels the perfect man. Language of the Gospel of Philip, for example, although there may be differences in how those two authors would express the details of everything. Let's take a look at what happens. After the Savior departs, the dialogue keeps going on among the different disciples. And here's where Mary Magdalene comes into the picture as the favorite disciple. And she's presented as having special knowledge that only she has received from the Savior and that no other disciple has received from the Savior. She's presented as the favorite disciple. Many of the writings we've looked at do this. Even the Gospel of John in the New Testament, for example, does this. Has a beloved disciple that is the favorite of Jesus. And this, the implication is that the community who later has some connection or claims a connection to that beloved disciple has the truth more than the other followers of Jesus who don't have a connection to that disciple. And that seems to be the same sort of dynamic of, you could say, internal struggles among different Christian groups. And we're seeing that going on here. In this case, this community actually looks to Mary Magdalene as the favorite disciple of Jesus. Take a look at how this begins with Mary Magdalene coming into the, the scene. She basically is a comforter here. The other disciples are in total disarray because the Savior has departed. Sure, he was explaining to them things. Sure, he was answering what matter was, what sin really is. It's not what other Christians think it is. It's something else. And explaining you need to return to your root. But he leaves and the rest of the disciples are still confused about this whole scenario. They still don't understand the teaching. They still, therefore, don't have access to the knowledge they need in order to achieve salvation. But they were grieved. They wept greatly, saying, How shall we go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel of the kingdom of the Son of Man? If they did not spare him, how will they spare us? They're worried about being killed. Then Mary stood up, greeted them all, and said to her brothers, Do not weep and do not grieve nor be irresolute, for his grace will be entirely with you and will protect you. But rather, let us praise his greatness, for he has prepared us and made us into men. Look what Mary says as she continues here. So she's comforting them, greeting them, telling them not to weep. Then it says, when Mary said this, she turned their hearts to the good, and they began to discuss words of the Savior. So Mary has presented here as an instructor who points the rest of the confused disciples to look back to the good. There's some things that have the root of the good, 
and there's some things that have the root of matter. And here she's pointing them back to the perfect good that it parallels the sort of one perfect principle we've seen in some of the other Nagamati writings in terms of the worldview. You can place this within a variety of contexts, obviously, this fundamental role for Mary. We've already come across debates within Christianity in the second century, in the late first century, over what role women can play within specific Christian groups. So that when we discussed the Acts of Paul and Thecla and the pastoral epistles, we had very clear instance of a struggle going on between different Christian groups over the role of women. And we had a struggle in that case where the two sides in the struggle were both using Paul to try and win the battle over what they thought the role of women should be with the Acts of Paul and Thecla presenting a Paul who says, go and teach the word of God to a woman. The story of Thecla in that novel involved her going and, first of all, baptizing herself and going and teaching, and, and her whole life is devoted to teaching after the story ends, really. That reflected Christian groups in Asia Minor, we said, who probably did have women leaders within their groups. And that it also reflected an attempt of that author to at least assert that position for women over against other followers of Jesus who said women need to be silent. The place of women is in the household. The way that women gain salvation is through having children and being silent and being submissive to their husbands. The perspective of the pastoral epistles who puts that in the mouth of Paul. So we had two different portrayals of Paul that were part of the battles between different Christian groups, part of the diversity of Christian groups battling it out with one another over different issues, in this case the role of women. You can place this sort of material then within that context as well as, well as within a variety of other contexts. Behind a document like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, we may have a Christian group who would have potential positions for women in teaching roles within the Christian groups where this document is used. We also know more about Mary Magdalene specifically though, including the Gospel of Philip saying about the Savior favoring Mary Magdalene most to the point where other disciples are portrayed in the Gospel of Philip as being jealous of Mary Magdalene's special status. Uh, let's go on to what happens here after she's presented in this way as the ultimate carrier of the knowledge from the Savior. Peter says to Mary, Sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than the rest of women. Tell us the words of the Savior which you remember, which you know, but we do not, nor have we heard them. So here the character of Peter is explicitly stated that they do not have the knowledge yet that will lead to the salvation that we know most Gnostic authors have in their mind here. It's Mary that possesses it and she's now going to impart it to the other disciples. Interestingly enough, at the end we're going to come back to see what the reaction of the other disciples are, which can be understood within the context of struggles between this form of Christianity and some other forms of Christianity. But let's see what she first talks about. She says that she had a vision. So that was part of the way she explains in which she gained this knowledge that only she had from the Savior and that none of the other disciples have yet. She gained it from a vision. I saw the Lord in a vision and I said to him, Lord, I saw you today in a vision. He answered, etc. And then there's this talk between Mary and the Savior or the Lord about how a vision takes place. Is it a vision that the soul sees is it a vision that the spirit sees, or is it a vision that the mind sees? So this author has this way of dividing up spirit, soul, and mind. It finishes by saying the mind is what sees a vision, but then we lose whatever else was going to be talked about there. Pages 11 to 14 are missing. 
When we rejoin the manuscript, it seems to be still Mary talking and sharing the knowledge, the special knowledge she has gained that no other disciple has, still sharing that knowledge with the other disciples. And this is the point at which we come to another important aspect of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene that we haven't seen quite as extensively before. And that is the idea of the ascending soul. We know that the Nag Hammadi authors we've looked at already have the idea of the descent of the soul or the descent of some spiritual element from the perfect spiritual realm and the return, the ascent. We know that that's part of how they think. They might express it differently depending on what author you look at though. This particular writing, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, gives us a glimpse into explaining the descent and ascent of the soul in terms of the soul's ascent through the heavens. It's not explained to us here, but what's taken for granted is something we have learned from some other Nagamati writings. Namely, that the heavens the soul is passing through are not the spiritual realm, are they? They're the heavens created by the demiurge. They're the heavens created as part of the material realm. But the idea of the soul passing through the heavens that are part of this material realm and being potentially stopped from the ascent. The soul being stopped from leaving this material realm is a central assumption of this explanation of the ascent of the soul here. Now, there's a whole lot of background we could go into that we can't fully go into today about notions of the ascent of the soul contemporary with this author. So, for example, to give you a Greco-Roman example, Mithras was a Persian deity that got taken on by some Romans in the first century CE and into the second century CE. And they developed a particular mythology around Mithras, the god Mithras, who slays a bull. And this was a very popular mythology and ritual practice among soldiers. And so you could study Mithraism if you want to go look into that further. It's, what, it's concluded among one of those types of religion known as the mysteries, right? The Greco-Roman mysteries. And so within Mithraism, they have this idea of the ascent of the soul passing through multiple heavens and ultimately reaching its destiny of salvation. And they understand salvation differently than this author does. The point I'm making, though, is the idea of the ascent of the soul is a common one, not made up by the Gospel of Mary, not even made up by the Nag Hammadi authors. It's very common within Middle Platonism, but it's also common elsewhere, partly because of Platonic influence of Platonic ideas. Well, within Judaism, by this time, by the second century CE, you have very well-developed notions within apocalypticism. You guys are familiar with apocalypticism. It's only one type of Judaism. Not all Jews are apocalyptic. We've already learned that. But within apocalyptic Judaism, within the type of authors who write apocalypses as a genre, who write first-hand visionary accounts relating to the apocalyptic worldview, we have as a standard traveling through the heavens. So in that case, it's not the soul achieving salvation through traveling through the heavens. It's the visionary, the apocalyptic thinker, being taken on a tour of the heavens. So this is what scholars call it, the otherworldly journey, where the visionary is taken on a journey, on a tour, and an angel is the tour guide. And the angel takes the visionary to various heavens and explains all the different heavens and shows them the underworld and shows the wicked being tortured in the underworld, and, and goes on a tour of the heavens and tour of the universe. So that is also an important background issue for understanding the development of these notions within the Gnostic writings. There it's not explaining salvation, though, in the sense of the soul going through the heavens to gain salvation. 
So here in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, we have a specific scenario of a soul passing through different heavens on its way to overcoming the material realm. It's a metaphor for the traveling towards salvation and a metaphor for what the soul needs to overcome in the material realm in order to leave the material realm. Let's take a look at this on page 15 of the manuscript where we just join it partway through and they're already in the third heaven, the soul is. It's unclear whether or not this is Mary describing her own soul passing through the heavens or whether she's describing something she received from the Savior in the vision she had of his soul passing through the heavens. But nonetheless, it's definitely being presented here, not as something that only Mary will, soul will do or not something that only Jesus' soul will do. It's being presented here as the model of how to describe the soul's journey to ascend to its root. I did not see you descending, but now I see you ascending. Why do you lie since you belong to, to me? Some other power. We're soon going to see there's going to be other powers talking to the soul. And here are the souls responding to that. I saw you. You did not see me nor recognize me. I served you as a garment and you did not know me. When it had said this, it went away rejoicing greatly. The soul has overcome an obstacle. And the obstacle is a power that's speaking to it in one of the heavens. Again, it came to the third power, which is called ignorance. We're already getting a sense of how these powers are conceived. What's ignorance the opposite of? Just to remind ourselves of it. Gnosis, right? Knowledge. So here we're having a metaphorical explanation of the soul overcoming ignorance to attain knowledge. And it being expressed in terms of the ascent of the soul through the heavens and encountering powers that hinder it, including ignorance, hindering the gaining of knowledge. And it came to the third power, which is called ignorance. It, the power, questioned the soul, saying, Where are you going? In weakness are you bound, but you are bound, do not judge. And the soul said, Why do you judge me, although I have not judged? I was bound, though I have not bound. I was not recognized, but I have recognized that the all is being dissolved, both the earthly things and the heavenly. The soul who is overcoming ignorance comes to the knowledge that all things return to their root. The earthly and heavenly things in the material realm includes heavens, ultimately will be dissolved and return to its root, nothing. It then moves on to the next heaven, to the next power. The soul continues ascending. When the soul had overcome the third power, it went upwards and saw the fourth power, which took seven forms. So here, the next power that's encountered is, is multiplied into seven. The first form is darkness. The second is desire. The third, ignorance. The fourth is excitement of death. The fifth is the kingdom of the flesh. Sixth is the foolish wisdom of the flesh. And the seventh is the wrathful wisdom. These are the seven powers of wrath. They ask the soul... From where did you come, slayer of men? Or where are you going, conqueror of space? The soul overcoming its existence as a man and passing through the space of the heavens is most likely what's in mind here. The soul answered and said, What binds me has been slain, and what surrounds me has been overcome, and my desire has been ended, and ignorance has died the slaying of bodily existence, the overcoming of bodily existence. 
And it's spelled out a little bit further for you. My desire has been ended. Remember that Platonic thinkers, including the author of the Gospel of Mary, think in terms of the soul's return to where it came as an overcoming of passion and desire. In fact, we've encountered other Nag Hammadi writers talking like this. Destroy the flesh is a saying in the Gospel of Philip as a metaphor for salvation. Let's look at the reaction of the disciples. That gives you insights into the struggles that are going on between different Christian groups. And that you can see this author presenting the truth that Mary Magdalene received as truth that gets rejected by other followers of Jesus. That it's imagining the disciples in the dialogue as having their counterparts in Christian groups. And that the Mary Magdalene community is battling it out with communities that see Peter as most important, or Andrew as most important, or other disciples as most important. In the process of the disciples discussing with one another, we're seeing the reaction of some other Jesus groups to the sort of teaching we're having presented to us here. So, end of Mary's explanation of her teaching, and then the reaction of the other disciples is like this. Look at Andrew's reaction. But Andrew answered and said to the brothers, Say what you wish to say about what she has said. I at least do not believe that the Savior said this. For certainly these teachings are strange ideas. What I'm arguing here today is that you can infer from this the possibility that this is representing the opinion of other followers of Jesus who disagree with this author, who disagree with the community who uses this document. Different Christian groups seeing this type of teaching presented here as strange. This dialogue overcoming by that by actually having it that Andrew's wrong. That those other Christians are wrong. That the followers of Jesus who say that our teaching is strange, they're the wrong ones, we're the right ones. We're seeing the battle for orthodoxy that we're familiar with from a lot of the other struggles we've seen. People claiming orthodoxy. People claiming to have the truth. And claiming that other people do not have the truth. And in this case, this author claiming to have the truth. And using the characters to anticipate what other Christians think about this teaching. And overcoming it by saying they're wrong. Those other followers of Jesus are wrong. Just like Tertullian says Marcion's wrong. Irenaeus says Valentinus is wrong. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene says that the types of Christians that he's using uh, in the cipher of Andrew are wrong. We're seeing the struggle from various sides, aren't we? Peter answered and spoke concerning these same things. He questioned them about the Savior. Did the Savior really speak with a woman without, without our knowledge and not openly? Are we to turn about and all listen to her? Did he prefer her, a woman, to us, men? Here's a gender issue. So this extends even to the gender issue I mentioned earlier. Namely, the struggle between different forms of Christianity is being represented here, in this case, as Peter objecting to a woman. Andrew objects to it and says that she must have made it up and that it can't be right because it's crazy. Peter says, not only that, but it's only, she's only a woman. We know this document takes the stance that Mary Magdalene's the ultimate. That a woman is the one that has the true knowledge that no other disciple has, that no other follower of Jesus has beyond those who gain this knowledge from Mary Magdalene. And we're perhaps seeing more of that struggle about women's authority that we learn so much about in connection with the Acts of Paul and Thecla in the pastoral epistles. In other words, that Peter is represented here as the type of Christian 
who says women cannot be in a teaching role. The disciples, in a way, are representatives of Christian groups who are struggling with one another and disagreeing with one another. Look at the reaction of Mary. Then Mary wept and said to Peter, My brother Peter, what do you think? Do you think that I thought this up myself in my heart or that I'm lying about the Savior? She's hurt. She has the truth from the Savior, we know, from the way that this author thinks. And the other disciples are rejecting the truth. The other followers of Jesus are rejecting the truth. The other types of Christianity are rejecting the truth that this type of Christianity has. My brother Peter, what do you think? Do you think I made this up in my heart? Levi answered and said to Peter, Levi stands up for Mary, Peter, you have always been hot, your hothead. Now I see you contending against the woman like the adversaries. You might as well be some archons trying to cause some trouble for us poor humans. But if the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the Savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. Rather, let us be ashamed and put on the perfect man and acquire him for ourselves as he commanded us and preach the gospel, not laying down any other rule or other law beyond what the Savior said. So Levi comes in as the rational guy who says, you guys are wrong. The type of Christianity that says that Mary's teaching here is nonsense is, nonsense is wrong. The type of Christianity that says that a woman can't give us knowledge is wrong. Let's start focusing, you other disciples, you other types of Christianity, you could say, let's start focusing on attaining the perfect man. In other words, in approaching, following Jesus in the way that this author this Gnostic author thinks about what following Jesus is about. It's about gaining the knowledge that allows you to come to a realization of the perfect man or the son of man within and allows that spiritual son of man within to return to its root. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Kaveh, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>